Ladies and gentlemen of America, make no mistake about it, Let's Talk kicks off May 31st at Colorado Springs Fellowship Church located at 451 Winchime Place. I'll tell you right now, folks, we are presenting a humdinger, and his name is Rod Bogovich. Been through the justice system, suffered huge injustice, and he wants to tell his story. Come on out, Tuesday, May 31st at 7 p.m. That's at 451 Winchime Place in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You don't want to miss it. We'll see you then. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they have committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest all right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And welcome in tonight, ladies and gentlemen. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight we're coming live from Colorado Springs, Colorado, where the temperature right now is 70 degrees, New York City 54, Washington, D.C. 61, and Los Angeles 68 degrees. Folks, make no mistake about it, tonight we touch on a subject, the fear factor and acts of intimidation by the federal government. Folks, don't go anywhere AJC Radio kicks off right now. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Lamont Banks along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt. And I'll tell you right now, folks, this is a humdinger, and this is some tragic information that you are going to hear tonight that you have to ask the question, is this happening in America, and I, the answer is very simple, 
and it's a resounding yes, that acts of intimidation have gone on in this country and continue to over a long period of time. We'll be honored to have a very special guest, Robert Blagojevich. Uh, he is the brother of uh, the uh, convicted uh, uh, governor of Illinois, um, uh, Rob, uh, excuse me, Rod uh, Blagojevich, and uh, he's going to tell his story, some things that he suffered, and some acts of intimidation that will blow your mind. Uh, read his book, Fundraiser A. He's going to be discussing the, the information in that book. It will blow you away. Also, we're going to have on the second segment of this program, uh, Hal Waltz, another gentleman that went through a huge injustice, suffering actions that you just think it cannot possibly be true. And we're going to dig into all of it. Folks, this is a very, very full show. Informative. Grab the family members. Get them around the computer, the telephone, whichever you prefer, because tonight uh, we dig into a very serious issue that must be addressed in this country. And uh, Dennis Cliff, Lisa, we were talking prior to coming on the air tonight in regards to these things occurring uh, in the place we call America. Dennis, when you hear that these abuses, these are just two people. They, this happens in the number of the thousands of people that are done wrong uh, by the criminal justice system in this country. Uh, and not only the system, but not only entities of the federal government, we're talking every way, every point that you turn to, we find abuse and intimidation. Your thoughts on that, Dennis? Yes, I mean, without accountability, period, uh, whether you're the FBI, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, the whole purpose is it's all about justice. But when we give uh, our, our law enforcement, uh, our, these in, when we give these individuals these powers that are not checked, there's no balances, there's no check. If they say it, then it is, and, and that don't work for you. And that's how we get incidents like these where people are wrongfully convicted, thrown in prison, uh, life is ruined, all because someone has that power and there's no checks and balances. We got to fix our justice. That, that, that's got to be fixed. And uh, Cliff, when you when you read about these things, we were talking about a story which we're going to go into now. Uh, and, and Cliff, I'll give you the the go ahead if you want to go on that story in regards to uh, a prosecutor raping a young lady uh, and doing those things in order, uh, basically, to exchange for her silence and with threats made by a prosecutor, he raped her and abused his power. Tell the folks a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this story is, it's, it's mind-blowing, it's disgusting, it is, I mean, here you have a prosecutor who's prosecuting the case. This is his star witness, and uh, she, you know, she was, she was a young woman who had been abused most of her life, had been sexually abused by uh, several people from the time she was a toddler. Uh, she was out jogging with a couple of her friends who were black. She is a, uh, a white female. And basically one of the whole, most horrendous hate crimes that you can imagine is her white, her black friends were gunned down in front of her. So if, if she was a star witness of, uh, in this case, the prosecutor raped her continually at 16 years old, raped her continually and told her that if she told anyone about the rape that it would negate the the case. The case would be thrown out, and the 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 murderer would get out of prison, and then come to find her. That is how he kept her under his thumb. And I, I mean, you look at these like, okay, what level of uh, 
of abuse, it, it is unimaginable. This prosecutor became a judge. And just recently, this article came out uh, last week. And so now him as a judge, she comes out and she says, okay, the murderer ended up on death row. He ended up being executed. And so now she felt comfortable enough that I know he's never going to get out because she he brainwashed her to believe what he had said, that if you if you tell that I've been raping you, that this man is going to get out and he's going to come get you. Now she's coming out against this former prosecutor who became a federal judge, been sitting on the bench uh, for the last 25 years since this happened. And she said, now I'm coming after you. Well, and ironically, he retires the day he gets, you know, these accusations come yeah. out. And, and this is, um, I'll tell you what, this is the reason immunity has to be eliminated has to. from prosecutors, has to be. From, the, from the system, period. I agree, I agree. There, if, if you inject immunity, there is no accountability. None. So how does a judge continue to move up the ranks and does exactly what he does to this. He is a predator. He does these things to a 16-year-old girl. He basically set the, set the stage, knew everything about her, and began to exploit and manipulate this young girl. This is outrageous. How does this get? I, I don't get it. It's amazing. It's amazing. Then you know what? It is the poster child of why immunity must be taken out of the criminal justice system. Exactly, because you look at this and you say, okay, this is this is one crime out of many that's been, uh, you know, basically done by a prosecutor. What about all the young women out there who who aren't speaking up? What about the people who know that their prosecutor, uh, you know, committed prosecutorial misconduct, but they can't say anything about it or nobody hears them? What it does, the the immunity, what it does is allow this to become a systematic issue, an entire problem where the whole system is broken. If you have a man doing something this blatant, as this is the prosecutor. A 16-year-old girl raping her and saying, if you say anything, then this, this killer is going to get out and he's going to get you. How do you put somebody through that type of psychological, emotional? You're saying, that, you're saying this individual is a, a, immune to breaking the law. I can break the law and you cannot prosecute me because I'm a prosecutor or a judge. This, that doesn't make any sense. Well, now, Dennis, his defense is that he didn't do anything wrong. It was a bad lapse in judgment. Oh, wow. A lapse in judgment. A bad lapse in judgment. That's amazing to me. That he continually raped a 16-year-old girl. It was a bad lapse in judgment. So if that's the case, then every rapist in prison today, let them go. uh, You know what? They're monsters. They're predators. They're this and that. But this is what you call unequal justice. Exactly. How How do the rules change? From a judge to a citizen, you are held to a higher standard as a judge, as an officer of the court, and the oath that you took to uphold the Constitution and protect the rights of its citizens. And that is the answer, and we as a society set back and just accept that garbage. That's straight garbage. Exactly. I agree. That's unbelievable. I'm sure we'll discuss this even further. Makes you sick. Uh, to the stomach that this type of, ladies and gentlemen of America, make no mistake about it, this is why justice must be sought out, that the fight for justice must continue. AJC Radio will continue to seek justice 
to bring the message of justice all around the world. Lisa, our disclaimer, please. Yes, we'd like to remind everyone that we are not attorneys and that a just cause does not provide legal advice. You want to contact your personal legal advisor for all of your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or AJC radio. And as always, we want to thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend time with us this evening. And thank you for that, Lisa. Ladies and gentlemen, pull up a seat. Right now it's 810 on the East Coast, but supper time maybe and in California and right here in Colorado. If you want to grab something to eat, pull up a chair, folks. This show is about to get very interesting. Coming up, Robert Blagojevich, brother of Rod uh, Blagojevich, the ex-governor of Illinois, speaks to injustice at a level we have not even begun to understand. That's coming up next on the other side of this break. I'm Lamar Banks, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt. We're coming back with the fear factor intimidation in America by the federal government. We'll be right back. This is Julie. How may I help you? My husband and I just got in a fight, and he hit me. With one call, you don't have to be a victim anymore. These fights are getting worse. I don't know what to do. With one call, you can end the cycle of violence. We're glad you called. The first thing we want to do is to ensure your safety. With one call, you can change everything. To speak to a domestic abuse victim advocate, contact your local family advocacy program. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause, and we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. Ladies and gentlemen of America, make no mistake about it, Let's Talk kicks off May 31st at Colorado Springs Fellowship Church located at 451 Winchime Place. I'll tell you right now, folks, we are presenting a humdinger, and his name is Rod Bogovich. Been through the justice system, suffered huge injustice, and he wants to tell his story. Come on out, Tuesday, May 31st at 7 p.m. That's at 451 Winchime Place in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You don't want to miss it. We'll see you then.
stand for equality. I stand for individuality. I stand for peace. I stand for diversity. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where we seek to bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight we touch on on a very serious topic. I'm, again, I'm Lamont Banks, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and Dennis Merritt. And folks, uh, if you want to join in the conversation tonight, feel free to call in 347-838-8976. And right now we're going to actually bring our very, very special guest, uh, Robert Blagojevich. Uh, he is the author of Fundraiser A, and uh, we've had an opportunity to uh, uh, read his book and, and, and learn some things, and he's going to tell his story uh, tonight uh, in regards to uh, what he has gone through. And, boy, this is going to be very, very good, I think, for the American people. And, Robert, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you so much, Robert. And to not get tongue twisted tonight, is it okay if I call you Robert? You sure can. And if you want to make it real easy, you can call me Rob, which is really what I go by. But we had to differentiate me from my brother Rod during the trial, yeah. so he told Robert. So please call me Rob. Well, thank you so very much. And, and Robert, uh, uh, I have learned some things in reading Fundraiser A that, has, I'll tell you, has, has shipped me to the core uh, of the – and what a proper topic for this show tonight, Fear Factor, uh, the acts and the conduct – uh, and the lengths that our government will go uh, go to uh, to administer injustice, uh, and that is something that has blown my mind. And I'm going to let you uh, give you the floor, uh, Robert, and tell your story uh, of what has happened and what has, what you have learned. And your book was, is honestly fascinating. And uh, we'll ask some questions here along the way, but I just want the American people uh, to hear. And, and some may call in, may have some questions, but I think the the information in, 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 that in that book uh, was absolutely overwhelming to me. And I am, again, blown away uh, in how you have stood as a soldier in the midst of such corruption. And I do thank you for taking some time out of your schedule tonight to join us. Well, Lamont, thanks for having me on. And uh, it's a pleasure to speak to your audience this evening. And uh, my story is really a simple one. It's a, it's a story of an American citizen who served this country on active duty for five years, five and a half years, and in the reserves, retiring as a lieutenant colonel, always believed that uh, in the United States, believed in justice and fairness, uh, paid my taxes. And in August of 2008, my brother, Rod, uh, who was at that time a, uh, his, in his second term of governor of the state of Illinois, was asked me to do some fundraising for him at the end of the year. He had told me he could not trust anyone to do that, to do that for him any longer. Uh, the, two, the people who were doing it for him, unfortunately, had been prosecuted, not on uh, fundraising charges, but on other uh, charges that one was convicted and sentenced to 10 years, another one, uh, IRS charges of tax evasion, and ultimately he committed suicide because the pressure was so great on him 
facing prosecution. And I told my brother that I would be happy to help him, but there were two conditions that I would place on him if I were to do this for him for four months. He asked me to do it through August to December of 2008. Uh, the conditions were, one, I would never play anyone for a campaign contribution, and two, Rod and I had to get along. We uh, grew up very close, uh, running the streets of Chicago on the northwest side, uh, did a lot of things together with our neighborhood friends, uh, but we drifted apart as I went away to college, served in the Army, and then ended up in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, in business while he pursued a political career. So we, I thought it would be an opportunity for me to get closer to my brother, and I can say that uh, he never one time asked me to play anyone for a contribution, uh, and uh, I ethically and properly conducted myself fundraising. Uh, and unfortunately, near the end, Rod and I were not getting along, and I was prepared to leave him after I completed my four months of fundraising. During that time, that four months, uh, I was nibbled around and approached with quid pro quos. That is, people asking uh, for a governmental action in return for a campaign contribution. The government wiretapped us during that time for 50 days. Uh, they had over 1,500 conversations of mine. Uh, 284 of those were with family. And if anyone were to listen to all those calls objectively and go through all the discovery that the government uh, provided to us through their interviews of, in, in their investigation. No one ever said any bad thing about me, and the tapes were very clear that I rebuffed people all the time. One of mm -hmm. the most egregious approaches that I was uh, faced with were two emissaries from, at that time, Congressman Jesse Jackson, Jr. Uh, one of the men was a close friend of his father, Reverend Jackson, and he had told me that the Reverend wanted to see his son appointed to the Senate seat, then uh, this particular emissary and the other had offered – one had offered $1.5 million to uh, fundraise 500000 by the end of 2008, uh, and then when the congressman was then Senator Jackson, he would raise another million dollars. The other individual who was – who approached me the separate, separate, a second time, a separate time, who had both had a coffee meeting, breakfast meeting in downtown Chicago with – Congressman Jackson, the day of the first approach, which was October 28, 2008, and the second approach was uh, October 31st, he, this gentleman offered a $6 million package. $1 million by the end of the year they would raise for my brother, and then $5 million would be raised by Congressman Jackson uh, while he was senator in the Senate seat. And I was flabbergasted by those approaches, and I rebuffed them. I told them my brother was going to do the right thing for the people of Illinois. And it wasn't about money for him, and, and Obama's seat was not for sale. Uh, as it turns out, uh, we were the wiretaps, the investigation. My brother on December 9th, uh, early in the morning, was arrested by the FBI. That morning, 621 in the morning, my doorbell started ringing, and it wouldn't stop ringing. I thought it was just someone off the street of Chicago harassing me uh, indiscriminately and as it turned out when i went downstairs there were two men in trench coats flashing fbi badges demanding uh that i turn over documents and i let them into the friends of blagojevich conference room and campaign office and that's that changed my life irreparably uh i learned very hard lessons through that period uh not knowing where it was going to go was indicted on two counts of wire fraud uh, in April of 2009, and a year later, Patrick Fitzgerald, the then U.S. attorney, as the 
Supreme Court was reviewing the actual law that Rod that I was charged under, which is the honest services law, a very vague law that essentially uh, if you were an employee at a company and you lied to your boss and said that you were you were sick and said you go to a ball game, you were in possible violation of honest services and could in theory be prosecuted. And so the law was very vaguely written. And there were three challenges to that that the Supreme Court was going to hear while we were on trial. In the meantime, Fitzgerald added three more charges to me to to, to hedge his bets uh, because if in the event the Supreme Court struck down on his services, I would have had no charges. I would have been free. Instead, he added three more charges, extortion, conspiracy to extort, and bribery. And the question I asked Lamont, even in my book, was if I did all those things, why did you not indict me the first with the first indictment with five charges as opposed okay. to two? Uh, and so that was the beginning of many things that I learned along the way. Shortly mm-hmm. after, and please stop me if you want me to stop. I can keep going here. Yeah, yeah, uh, Rob. Right. Like- I, I got a question for you to that sure. fact. It's, it, and it sounds like as, as that question is asked, uh, doing you know my research, um, your brother. Uh, the governor seemed very in tuned with the people of Chicago. Uh, he was concerned about uh, programs that helped inner city kids. Uh, he seemed focused here. Uh, and I think an answer to your question is a guess, if you will, uh, to why does the prosecution step back and come with initial charges? And again, I believe it goes to the fear factor and for leverage. And I think if, as I read your book correctly, they were looking for an opportunity to use you against your own brother. You, uh, Lamont, you read the book. That's exactly right. Shortly after my first arraignment in Chicago, which was uh, April 13, 2009, uh, I came home to Nashville and got a call from my lawyer a day or two later saying that he had gotten a call from the lead prosecutor, Reed Shar, and he was offering a global solution. And I asked my attorney, Michael Ettinger, what does that mean? He said, they want you to go talk to your brother and come, and talk his brothers and come up with a family solution that could take care of this problem and, and theoretically avoid trial. In other words, they wanted me to get my brother to plea or my brother to cop a plea to save me from prosecution. And I told uh, Mike that, no, I'm not going to do that. I didn't do anything wrong, and nor am I going to ask my brother or even say anything to him, which I never did. To this day, he does not know that I was approached to cut a deal with the feds, and it was another one of those moments in, in the process in the legal justice system of the U.S. that I learned how corrupt it was because they were playing me to get to my brother. And when I said no, instead of sitting down like they do in most cases get plea agreements, I was going to trial. And there was, there was one statistic that I think your audience re- really needs to know, and that is – and it depends on the year that you look at the numbers, but – the, during the time that I was under indictment, the, the Justice Department had a 96% conviction rate. The majority of those convictions were plea agreements because they intimidated people into pleading right. to some some alleged lesser charge to spare them a trial and greater jeopardy. Because in my case, not taking a deal, I faced five to seven years in prison if I was found guilty. And that to me is just wrong to try to just have me in a, in a case to get to my brother and so I went to trial Wow and I noticed uh, um, Robert uh, in the book and the gentleman you spoke of that took his life and I was 
talking to yes. someone the other day in regards to that excerpt in the book. Kelly, I believe, is the gentleman's name. Chris, uh, Chris Kelly. Is Kelly? Chris Kelly. Chris Kelly, yeah, Mr. Kelly. And I, I remember uh, that portion of the book, he said that they came once with an indictment to threaten him. They came back again with a second indictment. They came back with a third indictment. And again, if you're going to charge me with a charge, bring all three indictments on the table. But the corruption side of that was meant to break Mr. Kelly, to break him. And when he said it, it with his last breath, they won. Tell them they won. Mm-hmm. How sick does that in me, it brings a high level of anger that how do you let them that this is the cost of injustice and corruption and intimidation by who we are supposed to look to for justice. And I know that had to hurt you, hurt your brother, but it speaks to the mass problem that we have in this country with cover ups and corruption and to what length a government entity will go to to break somebody. I mean, these are the hard lessons, as you said, that you learned. Talk a little bit about what you felt at that time when Mr. Kelly passed and you heard how he died. What did that do to you? Well, until you're in the shoes of the one who's facing prosecution, you really don't know the emotion and the fear and the uncertainty that you face. And and so when Chris Kelly committed suicide, and it is not unusual for criminal defendants to take their lives for fear of going to prison and not knowing what their future is going to be. Uh, but in my case, I knew him tangentially a little bit, uh, but I, I, I understood the immense pressure he was under uh, that I knew that I was experiencing and had to mentally and physically prepare myself for trial. And so one of the things that I did, and I did write about this in the book, I, my son and I sat down and he really, he helped me put together a plan, a very simple plan to get through every single day, which was a hard thing to do, getting ready to go to trial and going to Chicago and facing the Goliath, the United States of America. It is a daunting thought. And so uh, for Mr. Kelly to commit suicide, uh, it was a very sad thing. Uh, I was not going to choose that path because I knew I did nothing wrong, angry, and I wanted an opportunity to prove my innocence. And what I learned during the trial was, it's not even a fair fight when you get into the, into, the, into the courtroom, even with the judge who's supposed to be fair and impartial, uh, because the government is lined up from the judge on through the prosecutors. And typically, most federal judges, if you look at their history, were former prosecutors. You don't have a lot of former defense attorneys. You've had a lot of former defense attorneys anywhere in that system. It's dominated by prosecutors who, are, who are, have their blinders on when they go after someone and justify Anything to win, and I'll and I'll tell you this, uh, uh, Robert. We did, uh, and, and Cliff, you'll remember this conversation with Congressman Hank Johnson, yeah. uh, out of Georgia, and he made the statement very clear to us: the problem with the criminal justice system, it's not defense friendly. And as you said, if these are the majority prosecutors, they're prejudiced against you from the jump, from the very beginning. There's no question about that. There's no question yeah. about that. And- it is an unfair fight. And as well, I mean, you have, just like you said, uh, Rob, that the the judge, the prosecutor, the FBI agents who investigated you, they all are working for the Department of Justice. They all have the same boss. 
So you think you're going into a fair fight, that you have a judge that is only going to be a referee, listen to the facts, and then make a, a judgment call on, you know, basically who was lying and who told the truth. But then you find when you when you're the one who's under indictment, you're the one in trial, then you realize and not in all cases. I mean, I won't I won't throw all judges in the same boat, but you realize that, OK, you guys, you have the same boss and you're after the same thing. The prosecutor says, I gave you a chance to plea out. You didn't. So now I am going to bring the entire strength of, as you put it, the Goliath of the United States after you. And it becomes a systematic problem that. Uh, the prosecutors do whatever they want. They can commit any crime as long as they say it was during investigating you. That that they can do whatever they want to, uh, you know, barring murder, and say, well, it was during the investigation. We were trying to get some information, and it it it, it is sickening the level of corruption in the United States justice system that we call that we call justice, and that many say, well, it's the best in the world. Well, how can it be when we have the most people in prison? And the highest exoneration rate that says, okay, we we realize we came to realize that we had so many people locked up wrongfully that uh, we're we're letting them out at record numbers. That is a sick stat to have. Yes, yeah, great they're getting out, but the fact that that many people were wrongly convicted and spent time in jail is just uh, is maddening. It's a tool. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about the plea deal. You know how how they you know, throw the plea deal out to you, whether you're innocent or guilty, and they use it as a, 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 a win tactic. Justice system should not be about a win or lose. Right. It should be about justice. Did 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 justice take place? What did did we did we apply the laws of this land and ensure that whatever took place, justice was in the front? No. It's not about that. It's all about a win. And that defense, I mean, it's hard to be the pro- a prosecutor when that prosecutor represents the the good old U.S. of A. It, sure. it, it's just so hard. So until we get the until we can get our justice system to get away from this win 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 sure. at any cost, let's just get justice. Oh, absolutely. And Robert, a couple of questions. Yeah. I, I know in the book you talked about that. First day, you know, when you're getting brought in, you got to go to the courthouse. They're fingerprinting you. They're doing all these. I mean, in a moment, your world experienced a tsunami. And you said in the book how you, when you got home that day, at the end of all, you sat on that bed like, man, what is happening? What has happened to me? I mean, tell the folks a little bit about that journey. I mean, your family and I, I can only, you know, I can't imagine. Uh, in a day, and all of this is coming at you. What was your source of peace in trying to get through all of this? Well, that's a very good question. And uh, that first arraignment, when for the first time I walked into that courtroom, I realized the system is devised to intimidate the defendant. That courtroom that we were tried in uh, for almost two and a half months is the size of a high school gymnasium. It's huge. The ceiling's 30 feet tall. It's large. The judge is up on his podium looking down uh, and you know, making his uh, his rulings uh, as if it was just you know a day in the park, uh, not really understanding the gravity of what's going on really with the defendant and what's going on mentally. And for me, that first day when they called us up, Rod and me, to um, – except the fact that we were indicted, understood our charges, and swear 
that we would tell the truth and the whole truth, nothing but the truth at that arraignment, um, I could not help thinking about my parents. And if they were alive, what would have happened to see their two sons, who they were very proud of, standing before a federal judge who represented the United States of America, preparing to put them on trial. It was a it is a mentally daunting thing. And for me, uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a measurement guy. I like to measure outcomes. I have you know work off of annual plans. I was in business, served in the army. You know there were there were structures and processes in my life. And once I got into the the indirect, nonlinear legal system, I learned that I had no control of my life. And the toughest thing I had to do was, one, wake up in the morning every day and face the next day and contain my anger because these people knew that I did nothing wrong, and they were, but they had the power to do it because they could. And sadly, once it was all over with, there, I have no recourse. We spent, I spent nearly a million dollars to defend myself. Wow. And that put, not to mention, a lot of stress uh, on me, my wife, my, my son, my entire family. But what you don't get through this by yourself. But I was determined never to give the prosecutors the satisfaction of, of bringing me down mentally or physically. And so I, I worked out every day. I ran, uh, either ran or worked out every day. I ate right, and I had measurable things in my course of my day that I knew at least during this very dark period of my life, I could still measure and feel like I was making progress, even though I had this unknown potential five to seven years facing me if we didn't succeed in, in on trial. So it is life-altering. It, it changed me as a, as a man, and it altered my, my faith and confidence in the United States government that I always gave the benefit of the doubt to. No longer do I do that, and I'm very cynical about it. And one of the things that I learned, if I could just say this about plea agreements, no, please. The government the government extorts witnesses. They 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 use they charge citizens with extortion. It's a crime. But when the government extorts a a family member or a a, a friend of someone to get something out of them, threatening them with prison if they don't testify against say a brother, um that I call extortion, but it's legal when they do it, but it's right. illegal if, and understandably, you know, out, out in the world, it's, it's illegal to extort people. But the government has justified the same tactics that, the, that people use against now their citizens, and they have legal extortion, among other things that they've stressed in the process because no one holds them accountable. And I think that is the problem, uh, Robert, with our country right now. Uh, we have members of Congress on the Hill seeking criminal justice reform because they're saying, you know what, something's not working appropriately. We have the largest rate of incarceration in the entire world. And when I hear your story, my heart is saddened, but I'm encouraged for the courage and the uh, tenacity, if you will, of yourself to step to the challenge and say, I refuse to be intimidated by government officials and uh, they decided uh, that uh, they were not going to bring any further charges. All the charges were dropped against you. Uh, what was that moment like? <laughs> well, initially, I had asked my lawyer to submit a severance request of the judge. In other words, I wanted to be tried separately from my brother. My brother was very visible, and I thought the way he was conducting himself publicly was not good for me. I wanted to be severed from him. We put the request in. The prosecution opposed it. 
The judge denied it, and I went to trial. When we, as we, I testified for two days, uh, two of the toughest days of my life, but I was ready for it and prevailed, fortunately. The day, the moment I stepped off the uh, witness stand, my attorney came up to me and said, Rod's team is going to rest. Everyone was expecting that Rod, well, Rod was going to testify. Mm-hmm. And I was told because I was such a compelling witness for myself that they decided to drop the, they, they decided to rest. And as a result, uh, the jury convened for three, three weeks. We waited for three weeks for a verdict, hung on all charges on me, hung on all charges of, on Rod in the first trial except for one, which was uh, lying to investigators. And then two day, uh, the day before the, the hearing was scheduled to set the next trial date, because once you're hung, you, have go, you go on trial again, yeah. uh, I got a call from my attorney again. He said, hey, I heard from Reed Shar again, the lead prosecutor, and he said, Hey, we'll give your guy his severance if he agrees to be tried after his brother's next trial. And Mike and I went back and forth. Again, this is well, on another example of how they played with my life. They they just right. they jerk you around because they can. So now they're offering a severance when before they said no. And the reason they they offered a severance was they saw that I was a very compelling witness for myself and to help my brother. Ultimately, we said no. Next day, the hearing was scheduled uh, for 11 o'clock. Now, one thing that I was very frustrated by was Judge Zagel was always late. I calculated the number of hours he was late every day cost me an additional $15,000 in in legal fees to have my lawyer babysit me waiting for the judge. Outrageous. Wow. Outrageous. Hey, you know what, Robert? Yeah, Robert, you know what? And if you show up late... You're in court. You're in contempt of court. They're going to give you a nice uh, hotel. Uh, right. Unbelievable. You're in contempt, man. Yeah, you're in yeah. contempt. And so very quickly then, I was. Yeah. I, I didn't have to go to court that day. I waited for my attorney to, to call me. I didn't expect to hear from him. I was doing something under under a sink, fixing a plumbing fixture that was so – the drain was very slow, and the text message beep went off on my phone. And I got up from underneath, and he said, Rob, it's over. It's done. They dropped the charges against you because the government, were, they were playing with my life. If I had taken if – if I agreed to take the severance deal, I would have still been in legal jeopardy. But since we said no to it, they had no alternative but to drop their charges. I mean they played chicken with my life. And what yeah. was lost on me was Judge Zagel was on time because when that text message thing went off, it was 11.01, one minute after – I got the text from my lawyer. So that began the rest of my life and a quest to write a book. Eventually I wrote a book, and I, today I spoke at Vanderbilt Law School. I am going around the country who will, who will ever invite me to speak about my experience and as a warning to American citizens that we've got a broken criminal justice system. And if I can just say one other thing, I was very fortunate on, in many ways. I mean I had to mortgage my house, had to, had to expend all my retirement funds to, to defend myself. I know that the average guy could not afford the kind of defense that I was able to get and spend nearly a million dollars and get myself in hock to be able to do that because they don't have the resources. And let me tell you, your life is upside down when you're indicted. I I was a fairly sophisticated guy, but I didn't know a thing about the criminal justice system. And now I do know about it, and I want to share that story with people because it's a real threat to our civil liberties. It really is, Robert. And I'll tell you, 
you know, when I, hey, folks, uh, and I'll say it to the folks in the studio, when I saw your, your profile, is this guy in GQ magazine, uh, <laughs> very uh, dapper fella, and, uh, you know, you have done some things that I think is, I guess I, we commend you for wanting to share this message, because I, I was talking to some of our folks that, uh, you know, of a show that we may do entitled, You Do Not Have the Right to Remain Silent. Uh, in our society today, too many people are silent. Too many people will not speak out against injustice. Uh, I think what you're doing is amazing, and I think it helps the American people. It helps communities. And, Robert, I'll just put it on the line for you. Just Cause has a, a initiative called Let's Talk uh, where we invite people around the country who can speak to issues that our communities need to be aware of. We would have no issue inviting you here uh, to Colorado if you're open for to share your message in one of our forums here uh, called Let's Talk, where the community can come out and hear your story, ask questions, and get your message out, because that's where change happens is in the communities. Uh, and I extend that invitation to you tonight. Are you open for that? Absolutely. That's a high compliment to me. Believe me, that's a high compliment. Yes. Let's see if we can work that out. I would well, be happy gonna... to do that. Okay, and we're happy with that. And I'm, what I'm going to do, Robert, I'm going to get a hold of you offline. Uh, and if folks want to get a hold of you, now, before I go there, mm -hmm. what are you doing? I know you're traveling, you're speaking, you're doing these things. I know in the book it said that you got into some property management type things. Mm -hmm. Are you still doing that? Yes. Uh, I was a corporate executive for many years after I left the Army. Uh, and when I left uh, the corporate rat race, uh, I was already buying small apartment complexes. And so over the years, I bought enough properties to where now I, I'm a small business owner and I make my living off of multifamily apartments uh, in, oh, in Middle yeah. Tennessee, in Kentucky, and northern Alabama. And so I'm a small, proud small business owner uh, who hates government overreach, not only <laughs> criminally but also regulatorily right. uh, because, you know, we're all trying to scratch out a living. So, yes, I'm a, I'm, I am – very fortunate, and I know that I am, to have survived the tsunami that we went through as a family uh, and for me to still be standing telling you the story in my business to have survived because it was hard to do. And, and, and Robert, how is Rod doing? Uh, I, I, sadly, Rod and I are estranged. Uh, okay. I haven't talked to him or I haven't talked to him uh, since he was uh, convicted and and. and he called, we talked shortly after that, and then since then, I even tried to visit him uh, at, at his prison facility in Littleton, Colorado. Yeah. And as I wrote in the book, I discovered I wasn't on the list. So from a personal standpoint, a tr sure. family tragedy. But from a legal standpoint, uh, he rides a fighter, and he's got a good uh, appellate attorney representing him. They have sent his case, they have submitted it to the Supreme Court to see if they'll hear his case. Because one of the things that I can tell you, if you are a part of a wiretap case, it's called a tapes case, even if you get up and, 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 and testify, the credibility really goes with the wiretaps. And one of the big issues that my brother has is there were over 50 times my wife, Julie, went through all of these wiretap conversations, getting, ready, getting us ready through discovery for me to go to trial. But she counted over 50 times where my brother told advisors or people in his circle, I want to do the right thing. Uh, I don't want to do anything illegal about filling the Senate seat. 
and that never got into the trial. And so that is one of the key cornerstones mm. of his of his appeal. Uh, thanks for asking. We're, we're hopeful. Hopeful. I'm cynical, but I'm hopeful that he'll get a good outcome someday. Well, that's that's good to know. And, Robert, again, AJC Radio, you have a new friend uh, in us, uh, and we Thank are you. honored uh, to have had some of your time. And we've, I'm going to be in touch with you later tonight or tomorrow, uh, and we're going to talk about Let's Talk as we bring communities together to make a difference, and we would be honored to have you uh, as a speaker. So we're going to talk about that. Robert, if folks want to get a hold of you to share your message, uh, you want to give that out to the folks now. I'd be, I'd be happy to. I've got two ways to do it. One, I have a website. It's Robert Blagojevich. I'll spare you the spelling, but it's you can find it, robertblagojevich.com. Uh, and I'll give you my cell phone number because I have had a lot of people reach out to me who have seen me speak or read my book, and I am open to people calling me directly on my cell phone. And my cell phone number is 615 417 2605. I'll do that one more time. 615-417-2605. I welcome any call from anyone who might have a question or issue related to being a criminal defendant or what it's like to go through a trial. And I can also say that I'm kind of a yeoman lawyer. I never went to law school, but I learned a lot about the system. I learned a lot how to get ready for trial and had good attorneys that I learned from. And I I tried to be a good student. So I would share whatever wisdoms I might have with anyone who has an interest. No, and that's just that's that's very respectable, Robert. And uh, I can't tell you enough how honored we are at AJC Radio and a Just Cause organization uh, as we seek justice and to bring that message uh, to citizens around the world. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. We're going to be back in touch with you, as I said, off, offline. Uh, give our best to your family, your wife, uh, your kids. Uh, and our prayers and thoughts go with you always. Thank you, Lamont. Have a good evening. Oh, you too. And uh, uh, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Robert Blagojevich, making a difference, suffered some things, went through some things, and has learned what we have learned that justice, Lady Justice, has gone missing, and it continues to lay idle in justice, or justice rather, lays idle in the streets of America. And we continue to see the fallout of injustice. We'll be right back after this. We know you care. Now is time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and register to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? 
The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. back ladies and gentlemen if you're wondering where you find yourself tonight it is ajc radio coming live from colorado springs colorado the rocky mountains and i'll tell you tonight dennis has been a humdinger uh what an honor uh to speak with uh robert blagojevich in regards to his experience his tsunami and his experience and uh folks if you want to get in on the conversation tonight we you can feel free to call 347-838-8976, and uh, I believe, Cliff, we have a caller. Yes, we do. Uh, we have a caller who wants to comment about uh, what Mr. Uh, Robert Blagojevich has spoken about. Yes, let's go to our caller. And uh, we have truth on the line, and you're live. Go ahead. Okay, I think the thing that really troubles me, and I'm so glad he's speaking out, because we were, as a family, totally shocked over what the justice system actually does. Unless you become a victim of the system, you don't even know what's going on, because you painted one picture out here and told that we have a good system, and all you got to do is do the right thing, and, and if you get accused of something... If you have evidence that you didn't do it, you know, it's all okay. That is one of the biggest lies out there. And when he said uh, on some of the uh, of the calls that his brother got that, that they had tapped his line, uh, the ones that really made him look good weren't even allowed in or showed that he wasn't trying to do anything wrong. Won't even let that in. That's what surprised me more than anything is that all the evidence that the IRP-6 had, showing their innocence. They never let the jury hear any of it. That judge says something and says, I'm not going to let that in. 
there's no reason for her not to let it in. And and this is and this is uh, 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 the judge who was over their case, Aguero. Now, if I if I've got evidence, why is the jury denied that evidence? You're putting yours out there, and so and and yours surely not true. Then when I bring evidence that this didn't happen, that didn't happen, this is what happened. We're not going to allow it in. That's not a fair trial. A fair trial is when. Every both sides are heard completely. Even the liars, such as the government, even them. Uh, you put your lies out there to the front of the jury, and you know why do we have ninety six percent of 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 all people that are in prison are plea deals? Because you won't let me put my evidence in front of the jury to hear what actually happened. So then the jury gets a one sided story. And you never hear what they did, what, how, they, how, they, how they did their business, nothing. You hear nothing about anything. And so every time you say, well, what about this? I'm not going to allow that in. There's not even a reason for them not to allow it in. Because it's, it's information that proves you're innocent. But I'm not going to let you do it here. But you quit calling this a fair trial. It's not a fair trial. It's anything but that. So when you go to court, you're not going to win if the government wants to hang you up by your head. You're not going to win because uh, we're not going to let any good evidence that you've got for yourself, we're not going to allow it in. I ain't never heard of such in my life. That's why they have 96% or more of people in prison with plea deals because you better take it because we're going to tell enough lies on you, you're going to jail anyway. And so I think that's what people fear is that, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to win. Sometimes they'll tell you, well, you're not going to win. I mean, we had evidence all over the place showing everything. They wouldn't even consider letting the jury hear it. And then when the jury said, is there any, any other evidence that you have? Then they lied to the jury. The judge did and said, no, there's no other information. This is not one lie. And you presented all the evidence to that jury. Those guys would have walked out of that courtroom free. They should have never served one day in jail because they had everything to back up what they said. Instead, the prosecutor uh, uh, brings in uh, 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 Matthew Kirsch. He brings in all these lined-up liars to tell the story. I don't know how much they paid them to do it, but they come in and tell all these lies one after another. And then the IOP six guys, they get up and impeach their, their 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 people and show you what they're lying. She doesn't even explain to the jury what impeach means. She didn't even explain it to them. A lot of American citizens do not understand different things that happen in the court of so-called law. They don't have, they don't know what goes on. And you've been told this is the way the system works. Where do you become a victim of it? And you don't have to commit any crime to become a victim. I just want your, your head and cut your head off, and I don't care what, and you better say you did it. So in other words, three deals is saying, okay, I did it. And so I'm thinking, okay, you say you put people in prison for lying, but then you tell me that I'm giving you a plea deal and you lie and say you did it. This this is the most crooked system I've ever seen in my life. I, I would have never believed that it happened in this country until it happened to our family. I thought, is this what happened? Is this why we have 
so many people in prison who never committed a crime. And and our society as a whole believes the system is just grand and dandy. That's because they never did it to you. If the day ever comes that they do it to you, you will understand this system is no such thing as justice at all. This thing is about people taking advantage of people's lives, putting them away from their families, and then make it look like they're the worst criminals on the planet and they never did nothing. All they ever did is our guys had showed they never committed a crime, they never did nothing wrong, and you still, and how you was going to, how you was going to prosecute them is because we're not, going to let, we're not going to let the jury hear nothing about what you did or how you did it. Any truth that you got that will make the government look bad, they're not allowing you to trial. That is a disaster. This system has to be changed, or it is unbelievable how many more prisons they'll build in this country to put people away that never should be in prison. So I appreciate this opportunity to be able to speak to that. And when I listened to him, I thought, oh, I can believe you. Because once you live it, once you walk through it, it is very plain that you're not going to get no fair trial. The government is going to have a trial. You're going to be sitting at that trial, but you're not going to have a trial. It's what they tell the jury. And they paint a picture all over the place. If you have the opportunity to say, now the, now the, uh, the prosecutor said this, look, this is what, here, here's what we got. He said this, this is what we got. He said this, this is what we got. Oh, no, we're not going to give you that chance. We're sending you to jail. Only God can make a change in this world with the corruption and all this going on. It's a tragedy. How many people's lives have been destroyed. It's really a tragedy. Thank you so much. And thank you for the call. And, and, and that's the point. Ladies and gentlemen of America Is the fact that these things Are continually going on And we're going to go to Howell Waltz He is familiar with the RP6 case And he You're not going to believe what he suffered At the hand of the system And we call it the fear factor here On AJC Radio The intimidation of the federal government Let's go to that interview right now We're excited to talk with you uh, in regards to the fear factor and the intimidation of the federal government on its citizens and actions and conduct that is unbecoming uh, for federal officials, and we wanted to share your story uh, on that program. Well, I appreciate your interest, your continuing interest in my uh, my story, Lamont and, and Lisa. Thank you. It's nice to speak with you again. Uh, it, it got so bad uh, as my conviction was being overturned that I actually had to leave America. So I can tell you a little bit about the fear factor. Okay, and uh, what I'm going to do, uh, and if you, you, can we call? Can I call you Hal? Is that all right? And please do. I'd be offended if you called me anything else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Hal, and uh, I'm going to just give you the floor, and let me give you an introduction to our listeners, ladies and gentlemen of America. Tonight, as the AJC Radio deals with an issue that is very serious in this country right now, it is the act of intimidation by federal officials and the lengths that they will go to uh, to cover up their conduct or their corruption. Uh, this is an ongoing problem. It has become an epidemic. And today we have the privilege of having Howell Waltz, a gentleman who has dealt with some issues in this country and I'll tell you what, folks, you're going to hear some things that may blow your mind, uh, but we're going to let you hear directly from the source. And, 
And Mr. Wolf, thank you for joining us tonight, Hal, and we appreciate it. And I'll give you the floor, and, and as we discuss this issue, I'll start it with this question. You have felt, if you will, the wrath, if you want to call it that, of the federal government and corruption that you as a, as a citizen felt the backlash of corruption and the fear factor that we're talking about on this show tonight. Why don't you tell the folks your story, and I'll give you the floor. Well, thank you very much, Lamont. Uh, it It is frightening uh, what these people do without penalty. There is no way it seems to uh, do anything to uh, make them pay a penalty for their crimes, even including judges. Uh, for example, Judge Christine Arguello in the RP6 case. There's absolutely nothing that these guys can do for the crimes that she and Matthew Kirsch uh, committed against them, even if they get their case overturned, uh, which is frightening. And uh, I read a study a few years ago by former White House counsel John Dean of 1,000 complaints to these judicial councils of peer review, and some of these were for criminal conduct of judges or for just an absolute uh, disregard for the law in these cases. And these attorneys risk their own livelihoods to make these complaints. Not one of these judges were determined to deserve discipline. The attorneys filed appeals in 450 of these cases, and not one was heard. So there is absolutely nothing you can do to judges. Uh, in my own case, they literally broke the law, federal judge and the prosecutor broke 56 federal laws, and well, this would never have come out unless another federal judge from another state, wonderful gentleman, Mr. Art Strickland, filed a habeas into the corrupt system in North Carolina from another state where it couldn't be so easily covered up. Or I would probably not want to even say this on the air because it sounds too unbelievable. So, I, you know, it took 10 years, but I basically got my name cleared. And once we proved all this in federal court, the government just basically walked away. They defaulted. They didn't even answer. So the judge, you know, will sanction them for not, you know, following his order to respond. But I guess they felt like it was better than it overtly admitting to 56 federal crimes. So, you know, what do we do? And the intimidation that these people impose on their targets is incredible. Uh, yeah. They seized my wealth up front before they ever did anything. It's taken me 10 years to get that returned. I'm still fighting to get part of it, but they had to give it back because I have never been convicted of any crime by any court of jurisdiction, yet I was ridden around for 87 months to 29 different jails and prisons. I was beaten. I was tortured. I now live in Europe and was interviewed recently by the U.N. Committee on Torture, and I suffered everything the U.S. has now in writing sworn it wouldn't do but waterboarding. So you know, come on, when when do these people start going to jail for their crimes? Oh, and I'll tell you this, uh, how the bottom line is, if we, you or I, were guilty of violating 52 or 56 federal laws, uh, we would be under the jail, not on death row. Uh, Absolutely, and these are federal criminal code violations, 18 U.S.C. statutes, yet they do it with impunity and immunity. The only thing they're subject to is peer review. Well, you know, lawyers just decide if they did something wrong. Judges decide if they did something wrong. You know, federal agents that break the law, nobody decides they did anything wrong, apparently, because I filed many, many complaints for myself and others during all those years of imprisonment. And they would send the complaints, the DOJ being they, 
would send the complaints back to the people who did it to decide if they did anything wrong. Well, well, Lamont, let me ask you this. If that is such a great way to deal with it, why didn't they just let the IRP6 guys get together with everybody else at the federal bullpen that day and say, okay, guys, let's have court? Do you think we did anything wrong? So, I mean, that's peer review. Well, okay, no, you didn't if you say I didn't, and, and everybody watches each other's back, so our jail's empty. So if peer review is such a great idea, why doesn't it work in the criminal system? Well, and I would say, uh, how on that, that the criminal system uh, is exercising a high level of an abuse of power. It is a – a, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I just, I'll just say it. Amen. I agree. Now, I see here how it looks like that uh, it says here that uh, you received uh, dehumanizing treatment uh, at the hands of the Bureau of Prisons, which is another federal entity of the United States government. Explain a little bit about that. Well, I, I received no medical care, which one of the reasons I came to Poland because I was uh, basically held without any medical care. I had uh, I had just some horrible dental problems and impacted uh, teeth. I had to finally sue the federal government to get them to pull a, a, a tooth that had been infected for 17 months. Broke my shoulder in some jailhouse fight while they were moving me around illegally, and and they refused to even set the shoulder. Though two of their surgeons said so, I, I mean, it was just just in terrible pain. Never got any medical care for seven years. Uh, it, you know, was forced to sleep on the floor. Uh, when I complained about the broken shoulder, they said, "Okay, you sleep on the floor then." So I, I've spent more months sleeping on floors uh, for a couple of years than I did in beds. Um, you know, I was beaten uh, on multiple occasions after filing lawsuits against the guards at Beckley, uh, FCP, uh, and FPC, uh, and the warden, of course. He didn't appreciate that much. Proved criminal conduct, caught them altering prisoner records and falsifying the work reports, the work reports from the supervisors would say, excellent. And then the uh, counselors and um, and advisors would rechange that and list it on the prisoner's files as as not good or poor, so they could not get early release or get the six months they're entitled to at home. The union pushed that so that they could keep you in prison longer. So I exposed all that, and then they uh, they filled in all the ballots during the election back in 2008. So I filed a federal lawsuit on that. So you know, anytime I would do these things to point out the criminal conduct of my jailers, uh, I would be taken and beaten and threatened and harassed and, you know, all my stuff thrown out of my locker on the floor with honey and coffee poured on it. Just, you know, it was just constant, constant harassment. Uh, they would drag me out in the middle of the night and put me on the road. I uh, like to say I was moved 29 times between jails and prisons. And you walk into a hostile environment every little bit, you know, it, it, it works on you. It, um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's terrifying because you, you know, somebody's going to try you, so you got to always be ready to fight. you got to always watch your stuff so somebody doesn't steal the few little things you have. <laughs> it, sure. Anyway, it's torture. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's, if you complain, it's common. And how I understand through this, and you understand why this particular show is so very important. How does a, the United States government here in the United States of America and its entities abuse its citizens? I mean, how it sounds like to me, Lisa, and you probably agree, we're hearing things here 
that many times exceed that in foreign countries. Oh, absolutely. What are your thoughts on oh, that? No. Oh, 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 no, that doesn't happen over here. I'm living in the former Soviet Union, and I am free. My phone doesn't have those little clicks or hear voices on it where someone's listening to me. I, I'm not followed like I was in the States. When I was following this overturn, there was somebody on my tail every day. They broke into the homes of friends and family. I stayed in to plant stingers to listen to them. They called and threatened these people the day after I left with prosecution if they helped me. It got so bad there in the, quote, land of the free, I literally left one night, did not tell my family, friends, or anyone where I was going I didn't even answer Ethel Lopez's emails, if that tells you how much underground I went, because until until my case was heard in federal court, they were going to do, and it wasn't the government anymore, it was the judge in the case, W. Earl Britt of North Carolina's Eastern District, because when I won, he lost his immunity. So it wasn't even FBI or anything else. To the FBI's credit, they literally refused to be a part of this second round. So the judge got his U.S. Marshals to do all these illegal things. So anyway, I, I, but on the front end is where it's really scary because, you know, I know now how corrupt the government is. I know they will do absolutely anything to be able to put another win on, you know, that scalp on, on, on their, their lodgepole, another trophy on the wall. These prosecutors are absolutely lawless and they're unaccountable. So the first thing we need to do is is remove any immunity for any of these federal thugs and black robes and agents and prosecutors. And if they violate your rights, which is an 18 U.S.C. crime, 241 and 242, conspiracy to violate rights and violation of constitutional rights, they do it every day, every day, and not one of them goes to jail. So that's the first key. Hold these people accountable. No more immunity from prosecution. And and and, and to that point, and Lisa, with that being said, now th- this is a dangerous this is dangerous territory, if you will, of what we're facing here as a country. Now, the FBI, the IRS, the these big government offices or entities, if you will, connected to the U.S. government. Uh, their their reputation precedes them as far as the corruption that they have done. Yeah. The danger now, according to you, how is that now you have judges stepping outside of the role of judge, which they are supposed to be the referee in proceedings. Now we have judges trying to bring payment, if you will, or revenge or whatever you want to call it, on its citizens. Then at that yeah. point, you're not fit to wear the robe. That's your no, word. hell no. And unfortunately, there's a constitutional slip up that occurred because, you know, when Alexander Hamilton proposed life uh, tenure for judges, it was to give them some feeling of security. He got the political case. But now, as, as I mentioned with these formal complaints, that's all you've got left you can do to them. The House, of course, has not have the courage to remove but eight of these guys and most of those were issues of moral turpitude you know they they could they can do anything to us illegally from the bench cost people their lives literally uh in prison or in executions and there's nothing we can do to them the only way they go out of a job is if they get caught caught with a woman or have their nose in the candy jar and i'm not talking about the hershey so it's 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 you know these people are are literally thugs and criminals, but there's nothing that we can do. So therein yeah. is the problem. But 
I, I, I think that we may have even discussed uh, one of these issues the last time I was on w with you and Lisa, but um, are you familiar with the recent admissions by the FBI and the DOJ where they have admitted to falsifying evidence in trials for over 20 years? Hey, you're talking in regards to DNA, is that correct? Well, no, actually, it started with their hair analysis department, Correct. and they have now had to come out and admit that this elite forensic unit gave flawed testimony in, quote, almost all trials in which they offered evidence against criminal defendants over more than a two-decade period. Now, that yes. sense has been expanded to their, you know, their bullet uh, department, fingerprints. It's now turned out that they, they have all been fudging for decades to do whatever the U.S. Attorney's Office told them to do. And this admission was made because of independent studies that proved it. So the FBI and the DOJ issued a joint statement. So now my point is twofold. First of all, the guys that are supposed to be the ones investigating these cases have admitted to lying on the stand and falsifying evidence for decades. Now, the second shoe that hit the floor, though, was a wonderful article in June of last year called The Destruction of Defendants' Rights in the New Yorker. And they cite a landmark Columbia Law study where they proved that before they did away with habeas corpus in 1995, that seven out of every 10 cases they found to have reversible error where the people were absolutely innocent. Now, I went through and did the math on these cases. I spent quite a bit of time on this. 73% of the cases at state and federal level. This is in death penalty cases, guys, death penalty cases, where you would think they would be a little more careful. Those cases had to be overturned when they were gone through. Now, in my own experience of working on over 400 criminal cases and in my own personal experience, I know that they get it wrong almost all the time. This was them admitting a 73% error rate. Now, let me ask you on your radio show, if all of a sudden you forget what you're saying and, and you go mute for two or three minutes and you did that on three out of four of your shows, do you think you'd still be on the radio? Uh, 